0: Hello, welcome to the um, final stream session of the day. My name is John Kingsbury. I'm the program director for Digital Arts R&D Fund. Um, This session uh, is entitled, How Can We Make the Most of Our Data and Archives? As with all of the sessions, it's designed to be fairly informal. The format is that we'll ask um, each of our three speakers to speak for about five minutes. Uh, We'll probably ask a few pressing questions, and then I'm going to ask you guys to do a bit of work and get more interactive with each other, and then we'll have some feedback from that session. And by that time, we'll have spent um, uh, 45 minutes, which will take us into the next session. I think I was talking to people at lunch, and um, the feedback from lots of you is that these stream sessions have been fantastically useful at kick-starting conversations. Um, but we're sort of lightly... And frothily going over just the very surface of some of the more in depth conversations that we can have, and I guess um, we we sort of designed that designed it that way so that these sessions are enable you to to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't have met before, and that they are the start of conversations rather than the sort of de- definitive kind of answers to some of the issues that we cover in the sessions um, our speakers this afternoon uh, are, are really impressive um on on data and archives we've got dave moultrie who's director and chief exec of the corner house uh, he just told me that he he was uh he's kind of very lucky we're lucky to have him this afternoon because he was in conversations about um the next stage for the corner house going forward and its development we've got um paul gerhardt who you know who was um brilliantly kind of emce- emceeing for us today and we've got Sophie Walpole, who's head of digital media at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Paul, I think um, I'm going to ask you to start for five minutes, if that's okay. Sure. I've got my big clock, sure. so I'll be, um, <laughs> uh, I'll be watching you, but uh, why don't I kick off? You. Thank
1: you. Okay, well, I'll stay sitting down here, if that's all right. Um, so my name is Paul Gerhardt, and when, when I'm not chairing events like this, I'm, I, I, I run a consultancy called um, Archives for Creativity. Let me just explain a little bit about the background to that. and Because talking to Sophie just now um, reminded me of when we were both at the BBC, which wasn't that long ago. But uh, one of the um, things that I was involved in in the BBC was BBC Education and BBC Learning. And then I was involved in projects to uh, develop greater access to the BBC's film and television archives. And the two were kind of related because the BBC was expecting people to learn and to perhaps undertake some kind of activity following the experience of its programming on its channels, whether TV programs or radio programs. And in a sense, that's similar to the way you get inspired by reading a book <coughs> or seeing a painting or an object in a museum and you, you want to know more. Um, but the difference between the, the BBC experience and the other experiences was that having watched the program, often that was the end of the, your relationship because you couldn't get hold of the program anymore. You couldn't say to somebody else, watch this program because it inspired me and you must, you must experience it as well. It simply went. So all the things that we provided, and I'm talking about 10 years ago here, were all ephemeral contextual material. We might provide a publication, we might provide a helpline, whatever it was. What we couldn't provide was the program. So that led to a lot of thinking about the nature of the BBC's archives and what they were actually for, and how uh, in the current um, context of technology and rights, we could begin to see how we could make those assets, the things that not just stimulated an individual, family, but enabled those individuals or families to pass it on to others as well. Because that's what we like to do with things that we love and things that inspire us. Um, I became the head of a a project called the Creative Archive Project in the BBC, which looked directly at the issue, not just of how people could access and view this and listen to these programs, but go beyond that and begin to use them in a way that uh, would construct um, their own uh, learning experiences, become become part of their experiences and part of what they want to create for others as well Um, since I left the BBC six, seven years ago whenever it was um, I've been uh, developing those principles with with, with other public archives as well particularly working with um, still with the BBC occasionally but also with the Arts Council and with the BFI and with, uh, with smaller archives as well so, I think there are some lessons that come out of the work that I've been doing for the last decade, and I just want to kind of touch on some of them for your consideration. Um, first of all, technical solutions around um, uh, access to archives remain obviously central. But I'm convinced that we need really strong public service, public value arguments in order to underpin those technical solutions, and in order to get the resources for them. And, of course, at a time when there's a shortage of resources generally, making those effective public value arguments are really important. And I think that the public value arguments we can make about our great cultural collections are as strong today as ever. Second point I'd make, in practical terms, is that whenever you talk about archives, people say, ah, there's always the complexity of rights. And indeed, the BBC is no exception to that. The BBC only owns a small fraction of its archive. There are many, many underlying performers and musicians and uh, uh, still other moving image um, uh, footage holders, rights holders, which raises enormously the complexity of of, uh, achieving greater public access. But there's a lesson to be learned here as well, and the lesson that can be learned is that in order to unlock the rights to our archives, we need to develop very effective working relationships with those rights holders. Rather than seeing them as kind of the enemy and the people that you can't negotiate with and who all they're interested in is the cash value, of those rights, you will find, I believe, that they are very important stakeholders in the process of releasing the value that you want to see revealed. And I've been working recently with uh, a number of uh, rights organizations, including particularly DAX, which looks after designers and artists copyright, um, and I'm absolutely fascinated by the, um, the, the, the commitment that they have to finding ways in which their members work Can become more available and more integrated in other people's creative practice. Managing data is clearly crucial around archives and people who are managing small archives, particularly arts bodies who are looking after small archives, kind of frightened about the the big challenge around constructing the data and metadata around those collections and making it available. Um, I've got a small piece of advice, which is the best thing you can do is to get into collaboration and partnership. With another larger organisation, one of the huge benefits, for instance, of working in partnership with the BBC, perhaps around the digital public space and its various manifestations, whether it's the space with the Arts Council, or the forthcoming manifestation around um, education and research. One of the values of working with uh, with the BBC is that you'll be set standards for. Uh, metadata which you can apply to your own small collection and and make sure that you can sustain for the future. Final couple of points. I also believe it's really important that um, besides the technical solutions to archives, we find ways to fast track what I will call bespoke, focused, um, creative outcomes. In other words, find a way in which someone from outside of your organization, from outside of your network, can come in and show you what can be done with your archive. One of the things that I've been doing in the last few years is some really interesting work with artists um, uh, and finding ways in which they can uh, be funded to uh, have residences or bursaries to work with the BBCs Um, film and television archives or with the BFI or elsewhere, and to see what they can produce. And um, and it's been a really fascinating experience because what we've done is not just create some some small-scale outcomes, which have had some very interesting exhibitions, but recently I've been working with um, an artist director called John Oconfra, where we've created um, a, a celebration of the life and work of Stuart Hall, the cultural theorist, not the presenter, the cultural theorist. And um, those of you who know the work of Stuart Hall know how important it's been in the UK's cultural development and understanding of itself. And what we've done is to create two things. we created a, a three-screen installation called The Unfinished Conversation, which was enormously um, welcomed, and, and, and people queued up to view it at the Liverpool Biennial last year. And w- from the same material, we've just created a 90-minute feature film called The Stuart Hall Project, which was selected for the Sundance Film Festival and was premiered at Sundance last week and will be, a, um, will be distributed in the UK um, over the coming months. I do urge you to see it, and I urge you above all to, to see what can be done creatively with ha- giving someone the license to work with archive content. And my final, final point, John, <laughs> is that um, uh, I believe that the future of access to our big cultural collections lies not with those big organizations, but with small organizations. They're the ones that can navigate the fast track through to both public access and creative access. Thank you, John. Thanks,
0: Paul. Thank you. Sophie.
2: Um, I hope you can hear me. I've got a terrible cold, so forgive me. Um, Okay, I've been at the V&A for a year. I work with Paul on archive projects and other projects at the BBC. Um, The V&A is obviously the world's greatest museum of art, design and performance. And about five years ago, um, they took an incredibly bold decision to release all their catalogue data, just release it. and, And there were a million records which had previously been sitting... You know, on card indexes and everything else, and then had been laboriously put into various computers and databases around the museum, were released. And even though they weren't clean, um, the, you know, the curators were not hugely um, thrilled at that. You know, some of their endeavours being published as work in progress, but it all went out there. Two hundred fifty thousand images were also published, some of them in high resolution, and it is all globally publicly. Accessible and there's also an open API, um, which means that anybody can develop or take the content and do what they will with it, within various. Um, uh, you know, you're not allowed to do too much commercially with it without talking to us first. Um, so the, the VNA has been doing it for a long time, and some people have built some interesting applications on top of it. We've had a, there's a search that the um, collections app, which was built a couple of years ago. Um, we use the data in all sorts of ways in the museum. To, uh, we have digital labels where people can access content. We have um, kind of cut down versions of the collections data all over the place. So the v has been in this space for a long, it's publicly and globally released that information. And we know that lots of academic institutions use it. Uh, it's a very busy part of the site, gets about 600,000 visits. A month and from all around the world and some of it's from thieves obviously trying to locate items which they'd like to come and steal at some point when they're on holiday in the uk but it's great and it's a fantastic service and it's there um and one of the things that you know now we've published it and we've done it how you know we know it appeals to academics the interesting stage next is and as paul was saying is how we aggr- how you start getting aggregations on top of it. So if somebody's just looking for Vivian Westwood, and we've got some stuff in, on Vivian Westwood, and American museums have got stuff on Vivian Westwood, how do you start aggregating and creating m- more pleasant visual user experiences on top of what is essentially quite a dry set of data? I mean, it's dry in that it's, you know, it's dense, and there's lots of interesting facts in it, but it is not as... Mainstream consumer-focused as it might be, it is it is what it is. Um, but we do it, and we've done it. We also publish all our public programme data, and people do all sorts of things with that. It's, it feeds into various apps like the Art Finder app, and we're very pleased with the way those things are progressing. So, in terms of data, we're only going to, we're going to carry on on that on that stream of work, and there'll be more data. We're going to release all our archival records at some point in the next 18 months, which will be another million records. Um, Accessible to anybody who wants to access them. In terms of archives, it's a much lumpier, harder, and kind of endless piece of work. I mean, the, with something like the performance archives that we have in the in the v we have films of pretty well every theatre performance that has ever has been given since films were possible to make of theatre performances. Um, we're in the process of digitising them, and then, but we will as Paul touched on earlier, we are then going to get mired in rights issues, but we're working on it, and we're going to look we need to find commercial models and new models of enabling access to that um, archive. At the moment, what we do is we show a film on Sunday afternoons in the V and a you can come and watch a film of an old play, and some of them are really kind of quite interesting for us you know either because the actors are in them that you know are now completely you know, in a different space or that it was a particularly interesting production. So we do do some things with, with our performance archive uh, which reach a small audience but we'd obviously be interested in reaching far greater audiences. Um, we also have an archive, of a massive archive of audio, of talks, of lectures, of pretty well every great British designer has been, has been into the v in, in the last few years and we have all that recorded. Um, and we're looking at how we're going to release that in the next few years. So rights are an issue with archives. We've just, we've, we have been, we publish some stuff for free. We have a very successful print-on-demand service, which is an obvious business that you can build on an on on image database, which we have. And we've just also recently um, launched a, our most ambitious app to date, which is called 100 Plays. Um, and it's, we have a free version and a really stonking paid for version, which has pictures, images, clips, and reviews of the key 100 plays from 1948 to 1998, I think it is, the last 50 years of the last century. Um, it's quite a niche, niche market um, to aim for, but it is an incredibly rich archive of you know it's it's a bit like cd-roms used to be in olden days but it's it, it there's a lot more potential to it partly because we can start linking out from it and into some of the archives that we have inside the museum in different ways so we've, we've had one or two very ambitious digital projects which have been running for the last sort of year or so since i've been in the vna um, and there are pilots you know they're to, they're to see what's the audience for these things likes them? How, how much are they prepared to pay for them? Um, and you know, we're on a journey, when, and we've we've got a very open mind about where this is all going at the moment. But we're frantically digitising stuff. We're always interested in. I'm quite interested in the design process, which we know a lot about in the VNA, but somehow, and we have lots of information about, but it doesn't seem to get yeah. out. In, in you know, we. It's, it's not easy for those people who are creative industries to access some of the information we have, and that's something we, we haven't tackled in the past and we're quite interested in tackling in the future.
0: Thanks, Sophie. Is that my five minutes? Yeah, perfect. Um, just, just one very quick question, though, because I'm sure that there'll be some questions and comments from the floor about how do you make this financially sustainable. Uh-huh. Are Your, your stonking um, commercial app, Yes. How much does it retail for, and how many do you have to sell to turn a turn a profit? Or is it not about that? Is it about outreach above above making it wash its own face? Um,
3: I
2: can't remember. Is that, <laughs> oh, and it's probably my cold. I think it's five ninety nine for the paid for version. Um, but I'll have to correct. I will check it out. It's it's, it because it changed right up. Read it out again. What was it? Seven ninety nine. Okay, it was going to be ten ninety nine. It is iPad, and we couldn't um, we couldn't stack it up commercially to make it available on the an Android and iPad. To be honest, and that, that and we reduced the cost at some point from ten ninety nine to seven ninety nine. This was a difficult thing. We are hoping it washes its face. Um, there is a book. It's quite a complicated commercial deal. There is a book. There is an app. Um, there are some other things coming which are all... Re- it's all one big project which has various windows on it, the app being one of them. Um, it's a three-year project, and uh, if you come back in six months' time, I'll tell you whether or not it's been commercially viable, but it should pay for itself, we know, and p- particularly because we know there's a market in the States. They can't access this content in any, any other way, and we wouldn't have released this content freely on the web, partly for that, for that reason, so that's why we've done it. Um, and it, we haven't properly marketed it yet that, that's deliberate because there's a book coming out on February the 14th and once the book's out we'll start marketing the whole project
0: thanks Brilliant.
4: Dave um, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea of criminal tourism um, I, think, I, I, I think if there's anybody here from Marketing Manchester we'll leave that one actually we'll have a, And and if you haven't seen the Stuart Hall project in any of of its incarnations, I'd really commend it to you. It's amazing work, and I think anybody that works in arts and culture should see it as a matter of of, of great urgency. Um, Right, I want to go interactive for a second. Um, How many people here work in the museum sector? Okay, what I'm going to say is absolute heresy. I'm going to shame myself now. Um, I want to tell you a bit of a story, because I I work for an organisation, Corner House, which is a a contemporary arts organisation. And our focus um, has has consistently been on the today and the tomorrow, as opposed to last week, last month or last year. And um, as a result of that, um, archive is a word we can barely uh, barely spell, never mind uh, uh, achieve properly, because it's not something that's actually in our immediate field of vision which I realised to the museum professional is absolute heresy. I started at... Corner House opened in 1985, and uh, since then has been consistently uh, screening over 300 film titles a year from all over the world, uh, both uh, from the historical uh, archive of Canon Films, uh, as well as uh, the contemporary. Um, uh, We've presented uh, between uh, six and ten, possibly occasions, 12 contemporary art exhibitions a year since then. Um, and um, I started at Carnhouse in uh, 1998, I think it was. Um, and when I joined the organisation, there were four computers in the building. Um, uh, the, uh, the CEO's, or the director's, the CEO's PA had a, a computer, uh, which was largely used for word processing. There was no email, by the way, then. Young people in the room, there was no email then. Um, um, and um, the, um, uh, there was another one in the general office which people shared, and there were two in the box office. We just actually, for the first time in 1988, got a computerised box office. Virginia Tandy, my old friend, is uh, laughing at the back because I'm um, sure she remembers all of this. And when I arrived, I said to my PA, um, Can you order a computer for me? And she was horrified. She said, why do you want a computer? And what will I do if you have one of those? <laughs> um, and, um, uh, and I said, an email etc." et cetera. So I want to give you a picture of what we were like as an organisation, because we had an archive. We had an archive consisted of a, of a, a, a big set of grey filing cabinets that had details of the contracts and various things, each exhibition that, that we'd done in it. And as time went on and we had more and more exhibitions, more and more in that archive got chucked out. Um, but then um, something strange happened, I think it was in 1999, we, we decided we were going to be really progressive and have one of those things called a website. And on that website, we started promoting the films. Um, and at the time, we were very, very unusual, um, uh, uh, because we were being supported by an organisation called Manchester Digital Development Agency, um, uh, in that we wanted a database-driven website, because. Um, uh, all you digi people out there, in 1999, they were amazingly unusual. Um, so, um, basically, uh, since then, uh, every film that we've screened, and we've actually retrospectively added film titles that we've screened before and exhibition titles that we've screened before, but not much else, have been added to that, to that database, which has been transferred as we move, uh, move forward. We've also, um, um, probably since about 2002, have uh, been putting other resources on, things like education packs or um, uh, uh, papers by Charlie Ledbetter or, or whatever that are related to what we're doing. Um, and um, in the last reincarnation of our website, we made uh, some of that available in a fairly simplistic way, but actually it was quite a, a, an important project, and uh, I, I thought Tim did really well in that. We, there's an interactive film map, basically, on our website, so you can, go, you can find out where in the world our, our films are being screened from. Uh, I've been drawn from, I should say. Um, but the sort of potential of the archive, of, of that digital archive of content, which is getting richer now, because we produce quite a lot of uh, media-rich content on, on the site, interviews with filmmakers, artists, uh, education backs, etc. But But um, I, I think about five or six years ago, there was a big spike in traffic on our website, because um, we discovered you could monitor the traffic on your website, which was quite fascinating. We hadn't realised that. Um, and um, um, it, was, it was coming from all over the world, and, and, and um, Isabel me I think it was a, a Spanish film, we put an, an, a web, a, an education pack on for this particular... It was a Spanish film, I think, wasn't it? it is. Um, and people were downloading it all over the bloody world because this film was being screened elsewhere, and it was appearing on various curricula around the world, and we produced this, uh, this pack in English and in Spanish. And... and we then thought about, hmm, there's something in this, this education stuff online. So, um, we we're now starting to get a bit more understanding of some of these, uh, of, of, of some of the potential of this. So we do we do uh, make our data available uh, for hackathons. Um, uh, we 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 are looking at how we can uh, develop in the next iteration of our website, make it more uh, searchable and usable, but. We are limited by the fact that when the organization started, the whole reuse edit, all of that sort of stuff culture had just never been thought of. Um, um, it wasn 't around then, um, hacking was something you did when you had a cold it wasn 't something that was a part of a creative process um, and um, uh, so consequently, we got rights issues, and, and the rights issues are quite uh, a, a very serious for us in the contemporary visual arts because actually there are a lot of things there are a lot of things that are made that are digital projects that the artist would want absolutely nobody anywhere near hacking reusing or anything like that and that 's absolutely right that they should have the right to do that and so it 's not simply you know if somebody came up with a fair fair use approach uh, that meant that legally we could make this available morally we couldn 't uh, because of our uh, our the, the sort of covenant that we 've got with artists because they 're really important to us um, I think that, um, uh, but w- when I was discussing this with uh, with, with colleagues from my organisation earlier, one of the things we, we, we try to do now is when we are making digital content and we ca- and, 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 and we developing content for the website, is we capture the rights to enable us to do that at the now. So think about our uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm going to sound a bit like a museum curator, I suppose. in that I'm thinking about creating the archive from what we're making now so that it becomes part of our policy and way of doing it. We probably haven't got it right, but I think some of the issues that, uh, that, that, that all of us face working in the arts is that we, you know, maybe we're not thinking about that when we should be because what we're doing today is tomorrow's archive.
0: Thanks, Dave. Brilliant. So, um...
4: gosh, we're running out
0: of time. Um, what I'd like you to do now is um, very simple. Talk to the people next to you, in front of you, behind you, and uh, two two questions. Those of you who have been in this room before will be sensing deja vu. Two questions. I'd like you to talk to your neighbors and colleagues about what the uh, biggest opportunities are for your organization in the area of archive and data. And then we'd like you also to think about what the greatest challenge that your organization faces reaching those opportunities. You've got five minutes and then we'll take some feedback from the room. Thank you. Thank you so we have some time left. Would anyone like, we have a microphone, would anyone like to be brave and put their hand up and uh, let people know what they've been talking about. Hi, is it Lillian? Yeah, hi Lillian. If you would like to say who
5: you are and where you're from, that would be great. Uh, Lillian Clark, University of Portsmouth and I think We've had gallery people and university people in this row talking about, yes, we've got all sorts of content that's archived that can to be provided. You spoke about the issues of rights management and how you, and trying to get the rights holders and organizations to be more cooperative. For us, I think the challenge is also that that's the rights organization. What we all have is an audience that doesn't respect Rights in the same way, that thinks nothing of downloading on P2P networks, films, music, what have you, that sees no problem whatsoever with taking an image off one of your websites and putting it on their website. They don't even, the audience doesn't even perceive this as a rights violation, or if they do, they shrug that off. And I was also I was, I was curious from the panel what do you do about the audience's perspective on rights organizations?
0: Would would you like the chance to respond to that? Uh, Shall I go first? Yeah, sure. Um,
2: Yeah, we know that people do it. Um, And we have a takedown. I mean, we have two um, strands of activity. One is where we've released images where we don't own the rights, because in some cases we have done. We have a takedown. So if somebody gets in touch with us, we have a takedown policy. It comes down straight away. However, if, and, and we ask most of our users to be honest. We are aware when people are downloading things. Um, there is, a, if you, if, if basically, if it's for non-commercial use, we are happy for people to take the content from our website and embed it in their essays or put it on their sites. Or Pinterest is a bit of an issue for us at the moment, but because our images then go into Pinterest and then Pinterest owns them. But with. Being as liberal as we can about it because that's the way the world is at the moment. Um, and we, you know, it's an endless debate inside, inside the museum. But a lot of the assets where we're releasing the images, they're publicly owned assets. And we believe that driving the access in, in the long term, driving the access is more important at this stage than trying to kind of police everything which we can't do. We'll never have the resources to police it all.
4: Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I think I mean the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, if 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 you don't want somebody to uh, to access it, um, uh, don't put it online. I mean, we, we, it, it, it's that, it's that simple. though, reuse it. I mean, we we just got to be clear about what our approach is and what our policy is, uh, um, and 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 be as honest as we we can about that. But uh, it's uh, it's impossible to close the gate on it now. It's out,
0: yeah. And Paul, your experience, perhaps especially working with smaller organisations, do they fear that? Is that a problem? Or?
1: Well, I. I'm slightly intrigued by the formulation that the audience is a kind of problem in this respect because in many ways the audience is the beast that we want to understand better. So their behavior is of great interest to us and I think there there is obviously a potential tendency amongst rights holders to see their behavior as being unacceptable, but that's because they're comparing their behavior online to their behavior in the physical world with real books or music or whatever, but their behavior online is different, and they know it's different. And so it's getting to grips and understanding that. Maybe part of the problem is we're describing them as an audience rather than as active collaborators in whatever it is we're trying to create for the future. If we think about it another way, then it's all about communication.
0: Thank you. Anyone else? I, I really. know um, uh, we're recording it, so oh, you yes. can. <laughs> we want to ca- capture. Yeah, I
6: just just add into that point that <laughs> we've we've even had artists take content um, <laughs> and and make use of it with, without asking permission, <laughs> and so we, it can even come back in the modern world. That's why I think we need to have a much more grown up debate about copyright now and I agree with the point you made earlier about protecting artists but ultimately I think there's a wider context and that's around intellectual property as a whole and I think, I think it, goes, it goes much deeper and organisations have always prof profited from other people's ideas and intellectual property, and ultimately that's made the world go round. And I think we need to have a much more of a grown-up debate around the whole issue in this, in this country, particularly with the government looking today at digital businesses being a real opportunity for the future. I think the way people's intellectual property, and that includes members of the audience, as well as organisations and employees, um, as, as, a wider, as, a, as a much wider tool for innovation... Okay, thanks.
0: Thank you. And there was uh, a lady in the pink coat there. Please wait for the mic. If you could just announce who you are that'd be, and where you're from, that'd be fantastic. Thank you.
7: Hello, I'm Lisa from the Manchester Museums and Galleries Partnership. It's just picking up on a few points that have been made, one by Dave talking about archiving from now and how we go forward, um, and also thinking about the audience and artists as active collaborators um, in, in generating work and intellectual property of that work. And I was just um, thinking about um, our own knowledge in our sector about copyright and intellectual property and particularly things like Creative Commons where, for example, um, when I did a piece of work with National Theatre Wales, um, it became very clear to me that as long as a discussion and conversation was had about copyright with artists from the outset and an underst- a shared understanding of what an artist owns or what is shared for educational or public purpose or hacking purposes, etc., then actually it could become a very exciting uh, way of archiving uh, work from now going forward. But I think that we do need to have a shared understanding about intellectual property um, in order to do that.
0: Thank you, thank you. Uh... There's a hand up at the back, Stuart. Stuart. So it would be great to hear, hear about some more opportunities. That would be really helpful.
8: Right, sorry, it's uh, Stuart Dempsey from GISC again. Um, well, just to back what Sophie was talking about, about um, open and linked data, um, we have spent the last couple of years working on what's called the GIST discovery principles. And one of the biggest issues, apart from the lack of cash, into you know digitise um, archives, particularly from small to medium-sized organisations, not so much for the nationals, is really the mindset. So, in other words, you know, trying to convince your trustees, trying to convince your senior management about the value proposition of open and linked data. So, I'd, I'd recommend that people look at the GIST Discovery uh, principles because there are real-world case studies. Uh, which gives the economic case, the philosophical case, goodness knows what else, talking head videos. Certainly with data itself, we announced yesterday the Digging Into Data uh, International Challenge, which illustrates the um, the way in which the tectonic plates internationally are moving in terms of funders in North America and Europe coming together to put up a pot of money. This is the third program now, Uh, so it's got a rich pedigree. And what that's trying to do is to... Bridge the gap between the absence, well, the the shortage of data scientists in the United Kingdom, uh, which is really critical for the success of this country internationally. Uh, the the lack of appropriate uh, data analytical tools. Um, so this this is a way of actually taking a new form of crowdsourcing, if you like to call it that, where you're bring together. Data scientists from the US working with people in the UK. And if you're interested, just Google digging into data. And if you're interested, you could put together a consortia which will need to include a UK university and put in a bid for funding. Stuart, just repeat what you have to Google again. Yeah, digging into into data. Digging into data. And just pick up on the thing about IP. Certainly, the UK government and the reckon. uh, recognition of the Hargreaves review and implementation of Hargreaves this year is really most welcome. What is probably more concerning is uh, the European Union internal market stance on licensing Europe, which is, terms of references, licensing Europe. In other words, they don't even recognize the need for potentially an exception for data and text mining. Uh, but you need to keep a watching brief on that licence in Europe thing, because if it is enacted through an EU directive, that has all sorts of implications for people in this room, as is the uh, right to be forgotten, which is about personal data and the internet.
0: So I'd just like a show of hands, please, on two questions. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. Um, Stuart mentioned price and cash and cost of unlocking data and archives. Could you just... Put your hand up if, for your organization, that is a, currently an insurmountable challenge for you to unlock stuff. There's at least. That's surprising, because I kind of thought it would be everyone, but it's not everyone. OK, So my second question is, Stuart mentioned it's the mindset of the decision- makers. Can you just put your hand up if you feel that that's true in your organization? Okay, so again, I mean, there are some hands, but in many ways, the poll, which I'm sure isn't completely representative of the whole arts and cultural sector, doesn't suggest that those two things are challenges. So just in the last few minutes, um, some comments from this gentleman here. If you just introduce yourself and thank you. Sorry, uh, Matthew Trivett from Broadway in Nottingham. I think one of the kind of biggest barriers to a number of organizations is a distinct lack of skills and knowledge in working with data and actually understanding what we, when we talk about data, what exactly are we describing or an archive. And I think um, within uh, this program, the, the NESTA funded program, uh, I think that would be something really interesting to explore, uh, kind of building a little bit uh, you know, as a kind of possible idea looking up um, A kind of standardized way of packaging cultural data so you know like xml for the arts or aml thank uh, you some technical terms but um. so so again just to take a poll on your point how many people feel that the understanding of what's possible using date technology and and data and archives uh, what's holding your organization back Okay. So, in fact, there are more people who think it's about understanding and knowledge than they do about cash and, um, and kind of mindset. So, I think that sort of, in a way, proves, proves your point. And, of course, for the Digital R&D Fund, one of the thematic areas that we're looking to find some projects about is data and archives. So, again, one of the areas that perhaps you can help explore for your organisation, maybe put in an application and then share with the wider sector, As some of the knowledge uh, um, uh, issues that Matthew's kind of highlighted, it's just time for one last question or comment at the back there.
3: I think, uh, (coughs) sorry, Chris O'Brien, Royal Shakespeare Company. I think when you asked those questions earlier, you used the word insurmountable, and it's not insurmountable, but it is a barrier. And I I think the biggest thing is prioritisation, particularly for those of us who's primary business function is not in the world of archives and I think that's the issue, we've all got plenty to do, how do we make archives take a higher priority than the other activities
0: That's a really good point, so let's do it again and have your question (laughs) What would you ask? Uh,
3: How many people in this room find that it's the prioritisation of the work around exploiting your archives that is the barrier?
0: Ah yeah
3: you see, you be yeah. able, you be a able. bit, a bit. <laughs> Thank you, John. Just, just okay. a point on that. Um, are there many
4: organisations from uh, uh, Arts Council NPOs? Uh, are there many Arts Council NPOs here? Um, okay. Within that sector, sex group, how many of you have got KPIs from the Arts Council about your archive? <laughs> That's kind of not the point. Can I well, it is, because actually that drives your business model. If you're a contemporary arts organisation, your archive is—it is, is, does, it doesn't drive funding, it doesn't drive any access or whatever, it's just a pain in the ass.
3: <laughs> I completely agree. It's John Pratty from the Arts Council. Um, <laughs> 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 but I think that's not the point. The point actually here is not... It would be lovely to set aside the questions about data, questions about business model, questions about the complexity of... Uh, of this word that begins with the A, archive. Let's forget about that. This is actually about understanding the culture of your practice or your collection or the, that, that, that building that you've got or those films that you've got. It's, there's a whole series of words and ways to, to navigate that collection that if you're not owning those words or understanding the culture and, uh, of, of this stuff that you do, then you're not engaging with your archive. It's as simple as that so actually the biggest or the smallest uh, cultural organisation or a or local authority archive they're totally totally sunk by a lot of this work because they're utterly straitjacketed by local government confines sometimes it bo- it boils down to really really understanding your collection or that your recent history or what you did last week and just owning that that's what really bringing archives to life is about Point taken about KPIs.
0: You're going to have to take it outside because I have to put put people into that room uh, as soon as possible. Um, Look, the debate will continue. I don't want anyone to feel that actually archives and data isn't something that they might want to explore through the fund, one of the partners of which is Arts Council England and AHRC and Nestor. So we'll create space. We've heard today about, um, on a very broad topic, a a range of kind of issues and and points. One's about opening up the catalogue and opening up data. Um, We've spoken a a lot about rights and making partnerships with rights owners. We've touched on, only touched on, um, commercialising products, price points and things. We've talked about um, making the case for public service, public value, perhaps as a way of prioritising unlocking some of the archive material that we had. And Dave's talked very eloquently, I think, o- about arts organisations thinking ahead for the future uh, and, uh, and about the future archive that you can help make today. Um, and finally, I was sort of struck by this idea of criminal tourists. Sophie, So, I've just got one more thing. Go on, very good. Cool.
2: It's about the word curator. I come from a broadcast background. I go into a museum and, then, and curators are you know, what curators are in museums. But in the world we're in, everyone's a curator. We are, everyone is, and it, that, it's the curatorial aspect of this which is something we've really got to nail, I think.
0: Thank you, so uh, I'd just like you to thank our speakers, Dave, Paul and Sophie. <laughs>